If you want to be a better climate communicator, you definitely want to listen to this episode. Regular listeners will know that recently I put out a very long episode, a whopping two hours, and I realize a lot of people don't have that kind of time. So I decided to take the art house section and separate it because my guests have incredible insight and advice about how to communicate climate stories, both through words and through images and even colors. So if you've not yet heard this interview with EJ Baker and Ray Binstock, they're both from goodenergystories.com, then you definitely want to listen to it. It will give you so much insight and help in how to tell better climate stories, how to create better visuals and posters, and they're just so much fun too. So enjoy this special episode of Citizens Climate Radio. It is time for the art house. Anna Jane Joyner, a longtime host of one of my favorite podcasts, No Place Like Home, has emerged as a mover and shaker in Hollywood. She founded Good Energy Stories, a story consultancy for the age of climate change. Through GoodEnergyStories.com, Anna Jane and her team provide fresh and engaging resources for TV and movie writers and producers. These resources are also super helpful for climate advocates like you and me. Anna Jane connected me with two people on her team to tell us about the initiative and give us all some pointers on telling better climate stories. Turns out both of these team members happen to be part of the LGBTQ plus community. Ray Binstock. Um, I'm a boxer. So I've been boxing for two years now. I had, was lucky enough to have an incredible coach who unfortunately passed away in April of 2022, but really changed my life. I'm a lesbian, so love living in that community. It's a, an interesting time in the LGBTQ world right now, but it's where I've always been. I'm Jewish. I'm always the most Jewish Jew around Gentiles and then the least Jewish Jew around actual Jews because I didn't go to Hebrew school or have a bat mitzvah or anything. But Culturally, my family is essentially a large jar full of gefilte fish and white fish salad. I would probably call myself a modern radical feminist, which is definitely a phrase right now that a lot of people jump on. But my interpretation of it is 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 personal to me and based on a lot of history and stuff. But yeah, that's I don't know. Those are some things about me. I knit. I'm a knitter making a shirt. Yeah, my name is E.J. Baker, and my pronouns are they, them. I am queer and non-binary. I am a more or less a secular diasporic Jew, but that's only sometimes relevant to what I'm doing. Yeah, those are the big ones. Um, I'm an artist. I like to think of myself as an activist. I'm a dog parent. <laughs> All those things. <laughs> Uh, AJ, first tell us about Good Energy Stories and what you do. Good Energy is a new nonprofit creative consultancy and content creation organization that is working to advocate for more and better stories uh, around climate change in film and television. 
We've recently launched our flagship research, which is Good Energy, a playbook for screenwriting in the age of climate change. That is really a holistic resource for screenwriters, showrunners, anybody else who's involved in the film and television storytelling process to hopefully give them essentially like everything you might need to know about how to tell moving and impactful and inspiring stories in the age of climate change. Yeah, so I am creative director of Good Energy. I am in charge of stewarding everything that has to do with how we visually appear in the world, what we look like and what we feel like beyond the incredible content that the editorial team is stewarding. I came to Good Energy as a consultant, as we're sort of like a ragtag crew of <laughs> folks kind of coming together to form this organization from various places. Independent of Good Energy, I am a partner and co-founder at my studio, which is called Maybe Ventures. We're a small creative studio and collaborative that's interested in sort of exploring interesting ideas about how to disrupt the static status quo and make the world a more interesting and better place. My role within that, again, is that I'm the visual design person. There's a Tony Cade Bambara quote that I love, which is that the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. I am primarily interested in using my skill set, which is art and design and visual beauty, to help people imagine that radical, liberatory, much better future <laughs> that we're all working towards. Ray, what is your role? I'm lucky in that I can just describe myself as a writer. It's what I do. I started in theater, so I'm a playwright, but I've expanded into screenwriting in the last few years. I also write prose and essays and kind of just dabble around in a lot of different things. But yeah, I'm a writer and that's what I do. This is going to sound incredibly pretentious, but I see myself as a story explorer because my work has always been driven by the tenet of radical empathy, where it is an attempt always to find commonality among the most disparate of experiences. I don't think so much of, of telling a story Think more about kind of going exploring in various aspects of society, going exploring in, you know, going exploring in differences and similarities and stories emerge from that because it's like physics. I, I hate physics, but I know that in physics, every action has an equal opposite reaction. Like the more you explore in differences, the more drama and collision and conflict and then resolution comes from that. I guess to me, the word the word storyteller sometimes feels too prescriptive, as though there is a story that you set out to tell. And once it's done, it's done. I approach story from a kind of, you know, trying to play with the elements of the story and figure out where they're going to take me before I present it to someone. I shot and produced my first short film last year. It was a 15-minute adaptation of a pilot that I'd written that is essentially about a bunch of queer women of color who invent a lesbian version of Grindr that becomes very popular, and then they become kind of, you know, new queer icons. They're on the 30 under 30 list. They're very, they become representatives of their communities, and then as their personal lives 
play out, it seems that each of them is secretly not such a perfect icon, you know, not such a perfect representative, which of course is true of everyone because no one's a perfect representative, even if we demand that they, that they be. Eventually we build it as a comedy, which is funny to me because I still don't feel like I ever write comedy. I feel like I write drama that has to be funny because otherwise you would want to jump off a cliff after watching it. You know, this short film was very, there was a lot, there's jokes in it. There's a lot of humor, even as these characters are struggling with mental illness and questioning of their sex, of their gender identity and lying to their friends. I think that for me, comedy and drama can't ever be disentangled. Uh, I worked on a show called Fosse Verdon, which was a historical drama that dealt with a lot of, a lot of misogyny, a lot of like trauma, a lot of stuff like that. And then immediately went to a show called Schmigadoon, which was as silly as it sounds. Working on in Fosse Verdon, it was about finding the moments of levity, even if it was the characters having gallows humor. It was about finding moments of levity in awfulness. And with Schmigadoon, it was about finding moments of weight in fun. So I think that it's always a reciprocal relationship. Now, I have to say, I've seen my fair share of doom and gloom Hollywood blockbusters through the years, some of them about climate. And I have a feeling that you're trying to steer storytellers away from these types of presentations about climate change. I hate the phrase, the end of the world, because there's no such thing. The world, short of every nuclear bomb on Earth going off all at once, there is no such thing as the end of the world. People are going to, people continue living through, people live through the Black Plague. People live through the decimation of China in the 12th century. We're a very hardy species. And so the end of the world narrative to me is designed to give people a sense of peace because it's like a movie ending. No matter how sad or upsetting the movie is, once it's over, you're free and you can walk away and the burden is lifted. That will never happen with the world, quote unquote. People will survive pretty much any trauma that they possibly can. So I think that one thing about climate storytelling is getting rid of that notion that the, the future is, is so radically different from the one we have right now. You know, it's radically different in the way that my parents didn't grow up with cell phones. That's a radical difference. But did my parents wear pants and I wear pants? Like that level of similarity is there. And I think we need to bring that to climate storytelling. You know, so getting rid of the apocalyptic aspect is one very major thing, because if people can never imagine themselves existing in the same world as the effects of climate change, they're not going to do anything about it until it's too late. There was sort of an assumption that a climate story is an apocalypse story and nobody wants to write an apocalypse story or most people don't write an apocalypse story because it like personally, emotionally it feels like scary and hard to deal with when it feels like so like deeply connected to your own life. So we wanted to create a feeling that was inspiring and intriguing and had a hint of the darkness, but wasn't like too depressing or preachy or any of those things. So what else have movies and TV shows gotten wrong? Like what are you advising storytellers to avoid? Getting rid of the humorless overbearing concerned about climate stereotype of a person. I love The West Wing. It's dated in that this is a show about the most liberal of liberals and they're all and most of the show makes fun of the environmental lobby. 
and makes fun of environmentalists and treats them like they're crazy hippies who are living in tents. That's a very kind of, you know, 90s, early 2000s view of climate, which is that it's like people who are getting upset, who are getting upset about the rare links being endangered when there's like people who don't have jobs. That's a big issue. But like we know now that it's not about being a humorless hippie. It's about any investment whatsoever in a future of happiness or peace or any kind of healthful prosperity for yourself, the people you love, the people who you don't know, but with whom you share the immutable human bond. We need to move past this concept that caring about collective future somehow makes you an unlikable person. It's a way of separating climate, the caring about the climate from relatability. In one way, it's a future that you can never see yourself being a part of. And in another way, it's a person you would never want to hang out with. Those two tropes have been around in climate storytelling for way too long. They have done way more harm than good, especially with the parody of the climate activist. It's like, like much of the humor that we've been re-examining over the last few years. It's just not funny. It's not a joke that like keeps on giving. It's a joke that like gives once and then shuts down forever. EJ, you are a phenomenal visual designer and you promote amazing visual storytelling through your design. I love the way you design the Good Energy Stories website. And I bet you can provide some pretty great insights for climate design. So talk about that. Yeah. So we initially started working on the brand for Good Energy in summer of 2021 which when we were speaking now in our early summer of 2022, coming up on a year ago. And one of the prime directives about what the brand could and could not be is no green, which sort of became a stand-in for let's avoid all of the tropes that we have come to associate with the traditional environmentalist movement. And that maybe kind of feel a little dated or cliche or trite at this point. So no polar bears, no polar bears sitting on a melting ice flow, no globe from space. It shouldn't be green. <laughs> and in fact, like we should have no green whatsoever <laughs> involved in the color palette. So then as a designer, you kind of think like, okay, well, if it's not green, what is it? <laughs> My, uh, co-partner at maybe ventures bruno almeido had led some really amazing research with screenwriters early on that surfaced some insights around the feelings that we were trying to elicit with this brand so we knew that we really wanted to sort of like allude to a sense of like magic and wonder but it shouldn't feel like totally happy sparkly bright wonderful all the time because obviously <laughs> an urgent and in many ways terrifying issue that we're thinking about so then when you think about color and it's not going to be green what's it going to be what's going to be sort of like the the anchor of the palette and it started from a place of like okay we've got a palette of blues essentially which work well in terms of saturated bold color that's also not completely overwhelming it can almost play the role of a neutral it can kind of like play nicely with other colors. And as we sort of evolved the brand, started using it in more and more applications, we 
started to lean more and more into the sort of accent colors that come in. So we've got like kind of a golden yellow and a bright red and a bright pink as we've kind of evolved and made illustrations and sort of tried the brand at various applications, we've sort of developed a balance of how to use that palette with imagery in a way that feels really rich and vibrant and fresh and unexpected, hopefully. Oh yeah, it is absolutely fresh. There's this whimsy to the work with like this hint of something off, something, I don't know, even creepy, especially with the images that are both familiar and also not. The illustrations and the collages are really sort of the heart and soul of the good energy visual identity. Part of that comes from that style of collage and, and art making is sort of like my go-to in terms of like my personal work and, and what I tend to gravitate towards. Obviously very within my wheelhouse and something that I was happy to do all day long. So that was how it, we originally sort of like came upon that idea. It works really well because it allows us to take the symbols and imagery that evoke visuals that you're associating with the traditional climate look are getting to. So you're like thinking about the natural world, but in a way that feels really different from what you're used to seeing. As we've figured out different applications, we've sort of finessed what imagery we use where and how. So the collages always have a lot of plant forms, often kind of like animal imagery. There tends to be sort of like a, it's, it's a collage aesthetic, which lends itself to really playing with scale. So you're not like realistically creating like a to scale composition, but you have like a giant fern next to like a leopard or something like that. So we've sort of been able to kind of develop this language that's essentially, uh, we can use it in kind of like a decorative way alongside content, um, if it's not like explicitly illustrating specific content. But we've also developed a series of illustrations to go along with the content on the playbook itself. And those are, we're much more likely to use people and human faces there. And those are sort of more designed to like actually illustrate the content itself. And it's still an evolving and living thing as we like will be continuing to make new imagery um, for content we have and for new content. But yeah. Okay, Ray, get ready because I'm going to pick your brain in a moment about writing and telling better climate stories. EJ, the Good Energy Stories website has these excellent resources for storytellers, um, in particular a playbook for story writing in the age of climate change which includes this excellent climate story cheat sheet and the climate story spectrum. I like that climate story is on a spectrum that you can tell a climate story in many ways. Uh, and you even have some amazing art there um, and you can provide some inspiration for possible strange climate stories. Um, there's a section in the playbook called global weirdings, which is all about sort of like, let's talk about some of the like, freakier, more surreal effects of climate change and how, as a writer, you might be inspired to incorporate those into your story world. For those, we did a series of spot illustrations that are really just like taking the actual, very sort of surreal, strange visual of these real things that are happening, like blood snow and ghost forests and lake bed full of arsenic dust and all these ideas and I think it's heightened by the the illustration style. It sort of adds to that 
slightly otherworldly feeling, but it is like completely real. It's happening today. No, it is it is absolutely excellent visual work. I keep pointing climate organizations to the Good Energy Stories website because it's just such a great model. Yeah, uh, climate movement needs design. Now, Ray, you told us what TV and movie makers need to avoid when telling climate stories. What do you think they need to begin including? Normalization. And I, I hate the word normalization because it gets used way too much these days, I think. But I do think that in the case of climate storytelling, normalizing solar panels, just that, the fact that solar panels save so much energy, they're such, they, they make such a difference. And they're so easy for a lot of people, a lot of middle-class households, so easy to have them. And people don't, just because it's not what they grew up with, their parents don't recognize it, they don't recognize it. That's not an excuse anymore. So if TV can normalize having these things on your house, electrifying your house, getting your, like all of these, even just the smaller things, that's not going to stop climate change. That's not the real problem, but it's a start in terms of people taking it seriously to take steps in their own lives to adjust to it and realize that it's not going to like change who they are as a person or the way they live their lives. It's just, you know, it's like getting a cell phone now that cell phones are out, like, get a cell phone, get solar panels. I am not a plot creator. Plot has always been kind of the thing that's least interested me about storytelling. I really come at things from a point of view, first of character, of who the characters are and what's compelling about them. And then about structure, you know, which means essentially to me, it's the math of storytelling. It's kind of like doing the math the right way so that your audience feels the rise, the peaks and ebbs of emotion in the places you want them to, for it to move them. When it comes to climate storytelling, a really valuable side of it is just the informational side of telling writers, giving writers, you know, an idea of what to write about, what's interesting, what's exciting, what's a possible threat. All of that is super important. But then there's also the, you know, I was just talking about kind of like, apocalypse and unsympathetic characters representing climate. What I bring to the consulting wing of Good Energy is a focus on character and structure, not as things that have to be forced into a climate-based model, but as things that rise organically from the reality of climate. You know, you want to tell a story about an underdog who is trying to change their own circumstances, maybe wants to to be their their champion of their people, et cetera. There's a, you know, there's a climate refugee possibility there, just as much as there is poor kid from a trailer park who tries to make it on Broadway. I work in terms of emotions, the audience's emotion and the character's emotions. What I bring is the ability to see how those emotions can hook into the realities of climate resiliency, climate disasters, all of those things. And, you know, start closing the gap between stories that writers feel like they already know how to tell and these new stories by showing them that ultimately everything they know about character and story is totally applicable to climate. Conversely, everything they know about climate could be relevant to their characters. It's just an issue of getting rid of the stigma of climate so that you can start exploring it for what it really is, which is an incredibly rich basis for character and for, you know, a dramatic structure. 
So you want stories that stir up emotions, but like which emotions? So honestly, I hope to stir up outrage. The youth these days, people who are below a certain age, outrage is their birthright. You know, and that's what I admire so much about people who are even a little bit younger than me is that they are so ready to be outraged at things they absolutely should be outraged about. Whereas I feel like for me, there was so, we were really, we're really stuck in this place of like kind of depression and hopelessness, which is not a fun place to be. Outrage is also not fun, but it's a lot more active. So I would like to stir outrage in people who aren't already feeling it. Like, you know, people whose view of the world, like climate change is kind of like, oh, it's this new thing. Well, I guess that I'll read about it in the news. I want them to realize how deep this goes and how wrong the reaction to it has been. And hope. <laughs> I mean, people are always asking me, like, where do you find hope? Is there a hope trope we need to avoid? I don't know. Hope gets a bad rap these days. Everyone beats up on hope because it's, you know, it's like a blind emotion or it's like it's hope means you're waiting for other people to do the right work, to do the right work. And I don't agree with that. I think hope, I think hope is one of the most innately human. I mean, <laughs> I'm a Jew, so we're very used to dread and shame, but the opposite of dread and shame is hope because no matter how much you fail, there's always a possibility to do better. You know, you hope that you will. Hope is the anticipation of good things in a world that tends to deliver bad. I want people to feel hope while also feeling outraged. I want them to feel empowered enough to follow hope beyond its most passive form. And what do you want to see included in movies and TV shows that touch on climate? It's not an emotion, but the word I keep coming back to is mundanity, is the fact that it's, and it relates to what I was saying about getting rid of the apocalypse version of a climate future, which is that the more people see climate change as this encroaching alien storyline in reality that's going to turn us all into the Hunger Games, the less people are going to take it seriously, the less people are going to feel, the more the, they're either not going to take it seriously or they're going to feel totally destroyed. And they're going to say, what's the point of working on, of caring about anything that's in my life right now, if it's all going to turn into the Hunger Games? What I want to inspire in people is a sense of continuity between their future and the one that's coming. I don't know. This isn't really, I guess it's not emotion. I want me, I want people to feel, I want people to feel invested and invested, not necessarily in the movement, but in their own futures. Because again, you can't get, a, it's, there's no world ending. You know, this stuff is very, stuff is going to happen and you're going to still be alive. Yeah. And, you know, I'm beating up on the Hunger Games, but the Hunger Games is also, I mean, it's got, you know, a bunch of ghettos that people have been put into because they're disenfranchised by their government. And then it takes people who are marginalized and sets them against each other for sport. And everyone calls it a fun bonding experience. That's the real world that we're in right now. Like, that's what TikTok and the NFL are. I find that the most compelling versions of the future or of alternate worlds are ones that, you know, on a sliding scale of directness, give us a version of the lives we're already living and just add enough strangeness to 
make it less, to make it unrecognizable at the beginning. So not a utopia and not a dystopia, something more, well, actually almost less, something mundane, a world where I can see myself as a character. And, and what about like, I don't know, a bad guy, like the struggle? What is the struggle in climate stories you want to see? I want people to feel determined and I want people to empathize with each other because we are being set against each other in a way that is as old as time. My stories are for the people who have yet to really understand the power that they hold in this current situation. The vast majority of the people who are being affected by climate change and by climate disasters are impoverished people, people of color, communities that are not part of the like little knot of quote unquote developed Western, largely white nations. It's the people who have historically been used by others who are now being fed to the front lines of climate change. I want to create empathy among those who are more protected for those people and for their vulnerability. I want people to, I want to create a world in which you're saying, I'm going to act now, not because I am in immediate danger, but A, because I will be at some point, and B, because people who could be me, there but for the grace of God go I, as as those people, those people are in danger. Those people are losing everything. And I would want them to come and help me. I want them to stand up for me if the tables were turned and it was me who was being flooded out of my home. I think capitalism as a structure is extremely individualistic and it encourages people to think of themselves as at the end of the day, their only line of defense. Like if I'm the only person I can really protect is myself and my own. And if I'm protecting someone else, that means less for me. And that is not the case. I want my work to make people feel determined to act. I want them to feel empowered, but I really want them to feel empowered in a way that is connective rather than individualistic. A hurricane isn't going to kill one person. A drought isn't going to follow one person around like a Looney Tunes cartoon. It's going to be huge numbers of people at once. And the more we normalize, again, that freaking word, the more we normalize collective action in the face of climate disasters and climate change, the more we prepare ourselves for a future that's coming one way or the other. All right, let me just say I'm totally loving this conversation. And I imagine that for you listening to the podcast, that it's giving you some really fresh approaches and ideas. I know personally, I'm going to think a lot about the emotions I want to stir up in the stories I tell. I'm finding that good energy stories is just such an incredible resource for all of us. Anna Jane's thesis statement has always been that stories are what change the world. I come from the school of Tony Kushner, one of my favorite playwrights, who says in the same breath that theater is always political. At the same time, theater is not direct action. And it's not. Theater doesn't create laws. It doesn't stop violence. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't stand in between someone and a speeding car. But it shifts the consciousness and the feelings around it to the point where it might help someone decide to stand in front of the car if they're ever in that position. And theater, TV, films, right now, those are the most important forms of communication they have because they bind us together. We share them. These stories that we're telling, 
They're not going to stop the climate crisis. The people who absorb these stories are going to stop the climate crisis. But if there are no stories giving them a sense of how that could happen or helping them see themselves doing that, we're just going to continue with the old story. And the old story is how we got here in the first place. Before we end this conversation, can we talk just for a bit as queer people? I mean, Ray, you're a lesbian. EJ, you're gender non-binary and I'm gay. And I don't know about you, but when I first began my climate work, I experienced two things. One was a curiosity. It came from this question or I guess I should say a query <laughs> that I kept asking myself, what is a queer response to climate change? Like, how does it affect us differently? What do we have to offer? And the people around me were so confused by this question, including my husband. He's like, what are you talking about? It turned out to be a really excellent question for me. But I also experienced this weird isolation when I went into climate spaces like, no one was rude or prejudiced against me for being gay, but these spaces were, like, super straight, and there were a lot of older, white, middle-class people. I ultimately found my way, and I experienced this super hearty welcome, but I definitely felt like an outlier. I came, you know, with a very different worldview. I mean, so I have been probably quite lucky in that I haven't had that much uh that much sort of deep interaction with the parts of the climate movement that are criticized for being very white or very heteronormative um or sort of non-inclusive or or undiverse uh in all those different ways but i think it's kind of exactly what you said i think anybody who has some kind of experience of marginalization and you know for me i think it's it's nuanced and complex as a, a queer non-binary person who's also a white person you know kind of sitting at intersections of marginalization and privilege but i think anybody who has any kind of experience with marginalization is already going to be really practiced at thinking critically about sort of the dominant way that the world works, which is uh, a very essential thought process um, when we're thinking about climate work and we're really thinking about like, okay, like we have to really radically rethink our relationship to land and to the world around us and the non-human creatures that we share the world with. Um, so I think just kind of like that already being positioned as outside of the, the sort of dominant narrative is a useful perspective, not just for me and as a queer perspective, but for anybody with any kind of marginalized identity doing this work. I'm remembering like those first dozen or so climate events I attended, and there were just so many older people there, parents, many of whom were grandparents, and they were like so deeply moved with this message that urged us, you know, to do it for the children and the grandchildren. And I remember thinking at the time, yeah, but I don't have any, you know, I have like no DNA in this game. I mean, I have no children or grandchildren and sure I can stir up empathy for someone else's and, you know, I have nieces and nephews, but I would, I don't know, be a little provocative and say things like, well, you know, like besides doing for the children, what else you got? <laughs> I mean, like, why else should I care? And I, I definitely didn't want to invalidate how powerful that message was for them. 
I, I guess I just wanted to find other talking points to engage younger people without offspring and queer folks like me without children. Women who are not interested in attracting men are the exact opposite of what this world is made for. The world is designed around what attracts straight men and in, you know, to a lesser degree, what attracts gay men. But if you are a woman, you're already disadvantaged. And then if you're a woman who has no interest in what men find attractive or what men want, you are at the greatest disadvantage. You very quickly have to figure out how to be able to interact with things that you have no interest in, how to find things important or worth your attention that to you are entirely meaningless and you don't give a shit about. I guess that that is a little bit of my feeling about the climate movement in relations to the queer community is it's like, yeah, I, you know, if you don't have kids, that's, then that's not your motivation, but you were someone's kid once and you might hope that if you had been a kid and were, you know, about to fall off a cliff, someone would have looked at you and said like, Hmm, I don't want that person to die. Even if they are a child and I find them annoying, but you know, as a, as a lesbian, there is so much that I am, that I'm asked to do that I have no interest in doing, but I do it because I know that I'm going to be able to keep living my life because of it. And it's also going to help other people. All right, EJ, this may be a stupid question, and I'm not opposed to asking stupid questions, but as someone who is gender non-binary, you recognize that gender is on a spectrum or even outside of a spectrum. There are more than just two options, male or female. So I'm wondering, how might that apply to climate change? I mean, is there a non-binary way of looking at climate? Whether non-binary people in general are better at thinking about nuance, I don't know if I can make that clear. Um, it's definitely not always easy for me. I mean, I'm a I'm a Libra, so I have like a a deep and complex relationship with nuance all the time. That's also probably why I gravitate towards the aesthetics. And from my perspective, and, and I would hope that this is a this is a fairly common perspective is that it, it's so abundantly clear that with a challenge as complex as climate change, any kind of like super binaristic black and white, like this is the number one silver bullet solution is just not going to be effective. Being able to kind of like approach a complex problem with an understanding of nuance is always <laughs> always a helpful thing. Um, and I don't know how much of it that I can truly attribute to like a, if it, since I am already comfortable with fluidity around gender and, and those ideas that are so kind of like deeply ingrained in society, maybe that makes me more open to sort of questioning other so-called truths. You're really totally confirming to me this belief that LGBTQ plus people bring a lot to the table. In fact, I will be so bold to say that the climate movement needs us. I mean, and obviously it needs everyone, but we bring unique perspectives, experiences, and skills to the party. The queer community has uh, a strong history of figuring out how to survive in tight places and figuring out how to make do that is massively what needs to happen in climate change. 
we need a climate stonewall. We really do. And gay people have already had a stonewall. So why don't we just do it again for climate? Mm, excellent point. And if you listening do not know what the 1969 Stonewall Uprising was all about, well, I think that's excellent homework to increase your queer cultural competency. Visit goodenergystories.com to see the many resources available and sign up for their occasional newsletter. I have links to all our guests and these resources in our show notes. Visit citizensclimatelobby.org and then look for the podcast option under the blog menu item. If you have an idea for the Art House, please feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Host and design educator Eric Benson interviews acclaimed climate scientists and sustainability experts to find out how designers can help combat the climate crisis in their college classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. You can find Climify on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to join the conversation and become a climate designer, you can follow the show on Instagram at Climify Podcast or head over to our great teaching resources at climatedesigners.org slash edu. Mm-hmm.